Amen. Thank you, and you can be seated. Well, we're coming down to the final two messages of our Refresh series. And today is a very important sermon. Not that the other ones haven't been important, but for me this is like really important because a lot of people struggle with this, but we don't talk about the struggle. In fact, this past week I have asked a lot of folks, have you struggled with this? And I would ask them, have you struggled with the assurance of your salvation? Now, for me, that was never much of a big struggle. I just accept and believe that God's word is what it is, his truth to us today. Never really had that big struggle with it. And I was just surprised how over and over and over, every time I asked that question, the answer was yes. There was this very small minority that said no. Almost everybody else said yes. So this morning, I want to talk about hitting the refresh button, getting victory over doubt, how to know you have the assurance of your salvation. This is about knowing that you're saved so you can live confidently as a follower of Jesus Christ. Because if you're not sure, you don't have the assurance of your salvation, you are not going to live, walk, act, think, function as a confident believer in Christ. And so if this is you this morning, I'm glad you're here, but you're not alone. Turn to 1 John chapter 1. All right, turn to 1 John chapter 1. I hope the alarm doesn't go off in this service like it did last week. 1 John chapter 1. Now, the the epistle of 1 John or the letter of 1 John was written by the apostle John. He wrote the gospel of John, 2nd and 3rd John, and he wrote the book of Revelation. He was one of the followers of Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, he was the one. Now, he's not John the Baptist, not John the Baptizer. He is the Apostle John. He's completely different, different individuals. He would be the one that was called the beloved disciple. He was always the one that was closest to Jesus, not only, I think, physically, but I I think spiritually, emotionally. They just had this bond and and obviously this, this connection. John wrote this book to a group of believers who were struggling with knowing that they were saved or not. Was Christ real or not? Am am I a true follower of Jesus Christ? And uh, false teaching was just running rampant about and around the work, the person, and the ministry of Jesus Christ. This is late into the first century. Jesus had died on the cross around 30 to 33 AD. We're not quite exactly sure of that date. But he is writing this towards the end of that first century. And now they are struggling with, is Jesus who he said he was? How do I know for sure? How can I know that I'm saved? And that's what I want to speak to us about. The false teachers of his day had a early emphasis or an early kind of pressure on their teaching from Gnosticism. Gnosticism would say that material things are bad and only the spirit is good. So therefore Jesus is not the son of God come in flesh because flesh is inherently evil they would say. So there is no way Jesus could be who he says he is because all flesh is bad. Everything flesh or material is bad and only the spirit is good. Then there was another group of false teachers who took that and spun it a little differently. And they said that Jesus was, he came in the flesh, but the spirit came at his baptism. And the spirit of God left this 
physical body of Jesus before his crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection. So there was a lot of false teaching around about the person of Jesus Christ. The gospel or the New Testament hadn't been completed yet. There was still some left to be done. And so these false teachers were kind of contriving their own belief system. Morally, these false teachers minimized the seriousness of sin. They claimed that it was possible to have fellowship with God and yet live any way you want to. So, for example, 1 John chapter 1, and by the way, I'm not going to refer to 1 John chapter 1. Whenever I say chapter and verse, I'm just in 1 John the whole morning, all right? No other verses outside of, of the gospel, 1 John, all right? But John insists in chapter 1 and verse 6 that no one can have a relationship. Uh, 1 John 1, 6 says that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And so John says, no, if you live in Christ, there is to be a difference. By the way, socially, these false teachers also prided themselves that they didn't have to love anybody because they were on a spiritual plane above everybody. And so they were puffed up with spiritual pride, and they could choose who they were to love and who they didn't love. Well, John answered that error when he said that if you're in the fellowship of the body of Christ, verses chapter 1, verse 10, that we're to love one another. So John writes this letter to a cluster of churches in a geographical area, probably around Ephesus, that were truly struggling with who Jesus is and his impact on our life. And so John stated five purposes for writing his book, all right? Look at chapter 1 and verse 3. He gives us five reasons, purposes for writing the book. Number one is that we might have fellowship together. Look at verse 3. By the way, this is in, my, this is in the smallest font Bible I got in my office, all right? So if I read something wrong, just pretend that it's right and we'll keep going, all right? That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ. And so the first reason that he stated that, we, that he wrote this is that we might have fellowship. Now, the word fellowship is koinea. It's a Greek word. It's a legal term. It's a term of, of partnership. It's a term of, of togetherness. It's a term of, of just commitment and bonding together so he wrote it that we might have fellowship the second reason that he wrote it is that we might have joy that we might have joy look at verse four and we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete so that our joy may be complete now by the way you might want to take notes on this um i, I did the powerpoint and evidently it's my fault is not kind of coming up uh, on the screen, so they're just going to keep hitting imaginary buttons and imaginary stuff's going to come up on there. But I'm telling you, the second point is that we might have joy. The third point is that we might not sin. Hello, he doesn't want us to sin. Now, remember, the Gnostics were saying you can live any way you want to. John says, no, that's not truth. 
Look at chapter 2 and verses 1 and 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you might not sin. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. Not for our sins only, but for the sins of the entire world. He's writing this because he knows that we do sin. And when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. But he's writing to rebuke the error that when you accept Christ as your Savior, you can live any way you want to know. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 says, not true. Well, the third reason that he wrote it is that, or the fourth reason, is that we might overcome error. Look at the verse 26, 226. It says this. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. He says there's a group of people who are not preaching the truth of God's word. They are not telling you correctly the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he said, I'm writing this so that you can know what is right and you can know what is wrong. Well, and he exposes them. Matter of fact, those, the Gnostics were claiming that matter was evil... And John said, no, it's not matter that's evil. It's your sinful nature that was born into sin. And then the Gnostics were saying Christ only appeared as a real man. And John would say, no, he was, in fact, a real man and experienced a real death or a real resurrection so that he ascended in a true life up to heaven and there today in present reality he sits at the right hand of the father going back to verse chapter 2 and verse 1 making intercession for our sins he tells us that Jesus Christ absolutely existed the Gnostics would say that the knowledge of truth is more important than living truth John would say and I'll put it in our terminology if you walk If you talk the talk, how does that go? You just got to live it. You know what I'm saying? You don't get the free pass to live as you want to. The Bible is our rule of faith and practice, and it gives direction and purpose and meaning to our life. So he writes it so that we might overcome error. And then he also writes it that we might have assurance. Look at chapter 5 and verse 13. Chapter 5 and verse 13 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know, that you may know that you have eternal life. I know this morning that I am standing on the stage at Kirby Church just a few steps away from Will Carlton Road in Wayne County in the state of Michigan, in the country of the United States of America. There is no one in here who would argue those facts. It is a present reality. That is the same idea of the word no. It's not ideological. It describes a present reality that we live in. And that present reality is having the assurance of salvation and knowing that Christ truly lives in our heart. So those are the five reasons that he wrote the book. Matter of fact, all of them almost start with these things I've written, these things I've written, these things I've written that you know, that you know, that you have joy, that you have fellowship, that you don't sin. I write these things because I want you to know. So I want you to have confidence that the God that saved you keeps you. Well, here's the cool thing. 
let's just go through a list of things that, uh, that can make you wonder if you're saved or not. Now, in John's day, Gnosticism was the big push of making people wonder if they were saved or not. In our day, it's a little different. So we're going to kind of step out of first century faith and kind of step into 2014 for a second. I'm just going to throw some things out there, stuff I've heard over the last week from different people. All right? I'll just throw this one out there since I happen to be the one doing it right now. And the first one is strong preaching. All right? Sometimes when those of us, and by the way, our heritage, we still do it. We still believe that the Bible calls us and that Christ calls us to a decision. And so when I preach, I preach in such a way that I call you or ask you or encourage you to make a decision. Sometimes it's to accept Christ as your Savior. Sometimes it's to examine your heart and life to see if you're living holy and righteous before the Lord. And sometimes when we stand and we preach on the righteousness and the holiness of God, sometimes that causes folks to doubt their salvation. Am I good enough? No, you're not. That's why Jesus died on the cross. But this idea of strong preaching, and I didn't add this, but also weak preaching... Weak preaching that does not name sin, sin. And, and, and weak preaching that just kind of dumbs down the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the first reason I would give to you is preaching, whether it's strong preaching or, or, or weak preaching. By the way, I, I don't apologize for strong preaching, and neither should you. Now, we don't want to beat people over the head with it, and hopefully if this is your first time here at Kirby Church, you can ask somebody after the service. We don't want to beat people over the head with the gospel, but we do want to confront your present reality with the truth of Jesus Christ, the fact that he loved you enough that he died on the cross for your biggest problem, and that's sin in your heart. And so we don't apologize. We don't apologize for preaching this book. We don't apologize that... that for believing that when Jesus saves you, he changes you and the old things are passed away and all things have become new and there ought to be a difference in our lives because we are Christ's followers. We don't apologize for that. Well, let me give you a few more things. Guilt. Guilt is another one. Guilt. Some people lack assurance of their salvation because they can't accept God's forgiveness because... They feel so bad and guilty about what they've done. And the guilt is just, oh my goodness, I have messed up so much. And I have done so many bad things. And I have just kind of wrecked it all. Now what's the problem? Where's the focus? I've done so many bad things. I've messed it up so much. I've wrecked this whole thing. You see, the focus of salvation is not on us. It's on what Christ did for us. The devil will beat you over the head all day with this sense of false guilt. But you're not his child if you are a Christian. You are a child of the King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, by the way, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will convict us of sin. The emotion is close to guilt, but it's not guilt. The devil will use guilt to our harm. The Holy Spirit will use conviction to help us to be more like Christ Jesus. So there's a stain of guilt. I think another one is the stain of ignorance. Many people lack the assurance of their salvation because they don't understand salvation. They don't understand the, the purpose of Jesus Christ. 
They're the center of their own of their own world or universe instead of Christ being the center of their own world or universe. I heard a story about a little boy named Billy and his mama was just so upset with him. And she said, with behaving like that, Billy, how do you think you're going to get to heaven? Well, he thought about it for a second. He said, well, I'm going to run in and slam the door. Then I'm going to run out and slam the door. Then I'm going to run back in and slam the door. And I'm going to run back out and slam the door. I'm going to run back in and slam the door. I'm going to run back out and slam the door. And then somebody's going to say, Billy, won't you make up your mind? Will you get in or out? He said, then I'll go in. And for a lot of people, their understanding of faith and salvation, ignorant, just doesn't go deeper than that. I want you to understand, there is no excuse in our culture, in our day, where you have four or five Bibles in your home, where there are so many good websites to help us understand, where there are so many life groups in this church and and the pulpit ministry and teaching ministry of this church, there is no reason for you to continue to live in ignorance about who Jesus is, what he's done for us, and the difference he longs to make in our heart and in our life. So that's God just not going to... Let that excuse fly. Let me give you a few more. Uncertainty. Some people lack the assurance of their salvation because a lot of us kind of make a big deal about knowing the day, the moment, the hour that Jesus saved us. Now, I'm one of those. I, I know that it was on February the 16th. 1967, as I was seven years old, I gave Jesus Christ my heart, my life, and, and I, I know it. I mean, it is like just burned in my, in my heart. I mean, that was just, I can tell you a whole lot about how the preacher came down the aisle, was getting everybody, and I've told you this story before, to, to going home that day and just feeling so different and so clean. But everybody doesn't have that. Matter of fact, for those of you who were raised in a Christian home and you were always around it, or for those who have been so antagonistic towards Christ and, and now you're more open to it and it's more of a progression of things, I, I, I can understand there's some folks who say, I, I really don't know the time and I really don't know the place. I don't remember being born again. I'm going to make a confession to you. I do not know, I have no recollection in my memory at all of my physical birth. Did you hear me? The day little Mikey Trimble made his appearance in this world. I, have, I, cannot, I cannot make one, I cannot reach back deep into my memory enough to bring back one conscious memory. Of my physical birth. But here I am. Hello. You see there's, there's other evidences of being saved. More than just remembering the time and the place that you were saved. Now if you can remember the time and the date you were saved. Just amen and thank God for it. But I don't think that necessarily has to be the same for everybody. What needs to be, what we need to encourage is, is not remembering a past day or event, 
but living the effects of that day and that event, living for Christ today, choosing to follow him today, surrendering to his will today. Does that make sense? So uncertainty. By the way, if you struggle with this state of uncertainty, all right, if you struggle with this state of uncertainty, and it's just the one thing you cannot get past, then when I give the invitation today in your heart, just say Jesus Christ on October the at whatever time we end up. The way I'm going is going to be around 4:30. All right. I gave my heart to you. This is my birthday, or it could be my gotcha day. Just the day that I got it and just kind of nailed this thing down and just nail it down. I mean, if the devil's going to keep beating you up over this thing, over something as silly as you can't remember the time and the place, but you know you love the Lord and you know you, you want to live for him, then just, just say in your heart after, just during the invitation, Lord, today I give you my heart and this is my gotcha day and this is the day I got it and I'm going to live for you and this is the day I made certain that I am a child of the king and then write it down in your Bible and anytime the devil says, hey, 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 you can't remember the time and the place, you hold that baby up to him and say, buddy, you better get out of here because this word's bigger than you are. So uncertainty. Well, temptations. A lot of times temptations make us lack the assurance of our salvation because we feel the pull, the pull of temptations. Trials can also make us doubt our salvation because of what we're going through. And we kind of question God's love and, and where the hand of God is during our trials. And how could God love me and let me go through this? How could he take my husband, my wife, or my child? How could I go through this divorce? How could he not hear my prayer and, and deliver me? Where's God when I need him the most? And, and we just have these uncertainties or we have this doubt because of because of the trials of life we go through can, can I just let you in on a clue everybody goes through stuff I don't care how bad your stuff is if in your neighborhood everybody brought their junk stuff you know that, that trials and stuff of life and everybody put them out on the street in your neighborhood so you can pick and choose which ones you want I guarantee you most of you would go home with the same stuff you brought out because a lot of times we look at other people we say well no it, that they're not going through anything well yeah they are the Bible says it rains on the just and the unjust we all have trials. It doesn't mean Jesus has abandoned us. It means we live in a sin, broken world. And we live in a world where the effects of sin keep accumulating and accumulating and makes it a little bit harder and harder for those of us who want to live by faith and have an influence in this world to do so. It doesn't mean Jesus has abandoned us. Oh, that's another message. Isolation is another one. If you're not a part of a life group, man, you need to see Pastor Joe. He'll be out at the kiosk. And he'll get you hooked up. Dealing with unconfessed sin. And we'll talk about that in a second. And then just living in disobedience. And those are like seven or eight things that would just mess in your mind. And when those things come, you have to turn to truth. You have to read in Scripture where God doesn't bail out on us when we're going through trials. But he's there in the middle of our trials. In the middle of the storms. And when you're uncertain about different aspects of, of faith or error, then you go to God's word and you read truth. Well, John 
gave seven tests. Going back to 1 John, he gave seven tests on how to know if you're saved. He gave seven tests on how to know if you have the assurance of your salvation. Oh, wow, wow, this would be great if they all come up. All right? Number one, have you confessed? Have you, look at 1 John chapter 1 and look at verses 8 through 10. It says this, if we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him, God, a liar and his word is not in us. So have you confessed your sins? Now the word confess means to agree with. Have you agreed with God that you are a sinner and that you need a savior? That's what confession means. It doesn't mean you made a boo-boo doesn't mean you slipped up. It means you agree with that whatever wrongs you have done was so egregious to a holy God that he had to send the very best he had to this world to die on a cross for your sins so that through his shed blood, you and I can have remission and forgiveness of sins. So have you confessed that? The second one is, do you live an obedient life? Do you live an obedient life? Look at chapter 2, verses 3, 5, and 6. And by this we know that we have come to know him. By this we know we have assurance of our salvation if we keep his commandments. If you keep his commandments, do you live an obedient life? Listen to verse 5. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him, that's God, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So in other words, if you are in Christ, you're to walk the same way that Christ walked. You're to be about doing what he was doing. You have the same, same attitude and, and same characteristics that he has. So do you live an obedient life? Yes or no? Most of us would go most of the time. Do you continue to sin? Turn to chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. Chapter 3, verse 7 says this. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Now, you've got to pay attention because he's not saying salvation by works. He's not saying you earn it. He says this. Whoever makes practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Man, that is a strong passage. Now, he is not talking about if... He, he's not talking about those who are overcome with a, with a sin in the heat of a moment. He is talking about deliberate, habitual sin. The sin that you won't give up. 
Maybe you got an addiction to porn and you won't give that up. Maybe you have an addiction to drugs. You won't give that up. Maybe you have an addiction to lying. You won't give that up. Maybe you have a propensity to, to gossip and you won't give that up. Maybe your heart just desires and, and pride to be the center of everyone's attention and you won't give that up. This, he's not talking about the times that we're trying to follow Christ and we slip up. He is talking about deliberate, habitual sin that we refuse to let go of. And he said if there's continual, habitual sin in your life that you won't let go of, you have not truly got a hold of the truth of what Jesus or who Jesus is and what he has come on this earth to do. He didn't come to save us from some sin. He came to save us from all sin. He didn't come to save us from the things that we don't like to make us Happy. He, he came to save us, to give us new life in Christ. So do you continue to sin? Do you refuse to grow up spiritually? Are you trying? Now, he's not talking about people who show a progression of faith. In steps of faith, and then they kind of sin a bit. He, he's, he's, he's talking here about people who are not growing, and they are refusing to grow because they are hanging on to a sin that they love to commit. And if you hang on to a sin you love to commit, you have not truly agreed with God about the whole issue of sin. 1 John 1.9. Do you love other Christians? That's test number four. Do you love other Christians? Look at chapter 3, verses 14 and following. He says this. We know that we have passed from death to life, from, from sin to salvation, because we love the brothers and sisters, the family of God. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother, talking about the family of God, is a murderer. And you know that murderers do not go to heaven. He's saying, do you love do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? And most of us would go, yeah, some of them. But quite honestly, there's some of them that just flat get on my nerves. I've told you before, sometime before I die, I'm going to get a shirt. I'm going to have it, some kind of cool graphic on it. And it's going to say, I survived church people. And by the way, I know some of us try to get cute and go, well, I got to love you because the Bible says so, but I really don't like you. Dude, that unearths a serious issue in your heart. You say, I really don't like so-and-so. Can I tell you how you can start liking so-and-so? It is real simple. Start praying for so-and-so. Just start praying for him. You don't have to go to him and go, well, brother, bless God, you're such a foul mouth cantankerous old coot, I'm going to be praying for you. Just in the privacy of your prayer closet, you pray for him or her. You don't pray that they'll treat you better. You just pray that God's spirit would move in an abundant way in their life. And if the Spirit of God moves in an abundant way in their life, transformation is going to take place, not so that they transform into what you want, but so they transform into what God wants. 
He's saying, listen, if you don't love one another, man, you've, you've missed the whole one of the central truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said, God is love, John 4. Matter of fact, turn to, turn to chapter 4 and verse Verses 4 through 7, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak of the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God and listens to him, whoever is not from God does not listen to him, and we know this. And I think I read the wrong verse. I did. Go back to chapter 3 and verse 14 through 16. Look at verse 16. By this we know love. We know love. That he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Period. In other words, the same love that Jesus loved us is the same love I'm to love you with and you're to love me with. And the cool thing is, is that we can love each other and not have to be perfect. God doesn't call us to a lifestyle of perfection. If we did, none of us wouldn't make it. He calls us to a lifestyle of growing in Christ. That's the theological term of sanctification, progressive sanctification, where we become more Christ-like as we stand in our justified, forgiven position in Christ. It's kind of like being married, you know? I, who, who's the oldest, the longest married couple in, the, in here today? Anybody, how long, yeah, I know. Anybody been married over 30 years in here? Yes. Anybody been married over 40? 45? 50? Nancy, you are now our expert on marriage. Can we have a nice round of applause for Nancy right here? And since you've been married over 50 years, how many years exactly? 52. Wow. That's incredible. Now, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you take 52 years times 365 days, and the answer is that's a lot of days. Since you're our expert on marriage, I'm sure that in those 365 days times 52 years, you and your husband have never, ever, 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 ever had one disagreement. So you can, you can have problems and still be married. <laughs> you should see her eyes light up. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. See, listen, for 52 years... And still today, they're working on their marriage. Just because you have disagreements or problems doesn't make them unmarried. In Christ, we are to grow in Christ's likeness, but we've given him our heart, all right? We've had this union with Christ, and now we are in a sinful world trying to become more Christ-like. There are going to be struggles, but our struggles shouldn't be with those that he calls us to love. Now, by the way, if you have odd against somebody, I'm telling you, just take care of it today. Just take care of it today. Just go up to them, say, hey, how we doing? Everything okay? Once you know I love you, I appreciate you, that kind of thing. Do you love other Christians? Let me give you three more. I'm just going to give you real quickly. Look at chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Do you love the Bible? Do you believe the Bible to be the word of God? 
Do you believe the Bible to be the word of God? And I just read those verses just a second ago. Is it your rule of faith and practice? By the way, we went to a, a conference this past week. The ten of us did from the church. One of the best messages we heard was this guy was talking about this couple, this mom, who, um, or this couple, and they were going to move in together. And they were telling the pastor that it was okay for them to move in together because they love each other and they could still be Christians living together. Well, just theologically, there's, there's a lot of little different issues, but his point with them is, and my point with you is, if you say yes to Jesus, you in turn say no to something else. If you say yes, that I believe God's word is my rule of faith and practice and I'm going to follow this book and I'm going to live by this book. If you say yes to this book, then you got to say no to things that this book does not endorse. Right? You can't have it, you can't have your feet in both worlds. So do you believe the Bible to be the word of God? Do you believe Jesus is the son of God? Look at four, chapter 4, verse 13. By this we know that we're able to abide in him and he in us because he has given us the spirit. We have seen and testified that the father has sent the son to be the savior of the world. Not only did you confess your sins, but do you confess that Jesus is who he says he is, the son of God and the savior of the world. And then the last Thing that John wrote about, he said, do you believe in the name of Jesus? 5.13 says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. He's saying this is the very reason I'm writing the book because I want you to know that you've nailed it down. I want you to know that you have assurance. Do you believe in the name of Jesus Christ? That his name is the supreme name above every other name. So just in case you're wondering, let me just very quickly wrap it up right here. How can we know where we stand with God? Well, the Bible gives us four unshakable truths. Number one, God loves you. God loves you. You say, you don't know how bad I've been. Listen, it doesn't matter if I know how bad you are. God knows how bad you are, and he still loves you anyway. God is love, the Bible says, 1 John. tells us God is love. Self-sacrificing, all committal. But you got a big problem. That's the second truth that you got to understand. Not only is God love, but you got a big problem. You got you got sin in your heart. Now, by the way, all I'd have to do is say, "Is anybody here never sinned? Everybody here never done anything wrong?" And no hand would go up because we've all sinned. The Bible says and come short of the glory of God. And that big problem means that you don't have access to God. You don't have access to eternity. You don't have access to relationship with Christ. Sin, 1 John 1, 8 and 10, separates us from a holy God. But the third thing I want you to know is that God provides a remedy. He provides a solution. The solution is, and I'll just take a, is found in John, 1 John 4, 14 and 15, that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. So God loves you, but you got a big problem, and so God provided a, a solution for your problem, and then you have a choice. Look at 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. It says if. It says if. It's a conditional word. That means, that implies free will, that implies choice. If you confess your sins. See, today you can choose to have a relationship with Christ if you confess your sins. Jesus is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness if you do that. 
But if you don't do that, if you don't confess your sins, if you don't confess him that he is who he says he is, then nothing changes. And eternity, heaven and eternity will not be yours. God loves you. you got a big problem, but he surprised the remedy or the solution, and now you have a choice. Would you bow your heads or would you close your eyes? I know today has been like...